I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Convo by Design. This week's Convo by Design is coming up in a minute. But first, I wanted to tell you about an amazing individual that we lost this week. Jonathan Gold passed away this week of pancreatic cancer at the age of 57. If you're a chef, restaurateur, foodie, or a devoted Angelino, you are most likely aware of Jonathan Gold. Gold was a highly decorated food critic, a James Beard Award winner, a Pulitzer Prize winner for his uh, dedicated and creative and dogged coverage of the Los Angeles food landscape. Jonathan Gold was far more than just a food critic. He uncovered culinary gems uh, across LA, OC, and the IE. Gold spoke as an advocate for the food scene and those that made it as vibrant as it is today. I would go so far as to say uh, to that Los Angeles is considered a world-class food city in large part because of Jonathan Gold. He sought out and shed light, a powerful light, on chefs who were doing amazing things in the kitchen. You recently heard an episode featuring Chef Steve Sampson of Rosso Blue who was also reviewed by Gold for his work at Soto in 2011, a beneficiary of Gold's coverage, and he acknowledged the benefits following that exposure. One of the things that I found so wonderful about Jonathan Gold is that he was aware of his power to make or break restaurants, and to me, he always seemed to want the chef to succeed. He also went out of his way to raise the tide of all boats on LA's vast food scene. He paid the same level of attention to a multi-million dollar plus build-out as he did to a hole in the wall or a food truck. A while back in that interview with Samson, you heard him refer to himself as a craftsman, not an artist. And it made me think, because I was thinking about Jonathan Gold and his work, I think Jonathan Gold was both a craftsman and an artist with regard to his work. He paid great attention to the level of detail of his work as an editorialist, but he also had a remarkably artful way of crafting his reviews that did more than keep score. He told a story. Much like the work of another food world loss, Anthony Bourdain, the difference here for me is that I'm an Angelino through and through, as was Jonathan Gold, and he will be missed. My sympathies go out to Jonathan's family, friends, and co-workers. Um, Hard segue from this, but uh, we're, we're going to try with this week's episode. I was in Palm Springs for Modernism Week this year and got into a very passionately heated conversation between an architect, designer, and myself on the topic of intellectual property rights and their relationship to the design and architecture business. The designer at the table that night was LA native and LA design fixture Gary Gibson. My background is in broadcasting and digital media. I was the general manager and program director for Playboy and the digital audio division. It was there that I met Emil Nicolau. Emil is one of the sharpest minds in the field of intellectual property rights. As the GM, I didn't always see eye to eye with Emil, but I always listened to him. And he kept me out of trouble on more than one occasion. As I was thinking about how I wanted to present the ideas regarding design and intellectual property, I heard Lori Posner on a panel at the 2017 West Edge Design Fair and was really impressed with both her, her knowledge of artists' rights 
uh, and the manner in which she conveyed the ideas and made them so easy to understand. I have been around intellectual property rights for quite some time, and it is probably one of the most misunderstood elements of the design and architecture business. If you're a designer, architect, artist, product designer, uh, or, or creative of any type that delivers a product or design based on your creative talents, you have rights based on that performance. Knowing your rights and choosing to or not to enforce them are two very different things. The following conversation is all about intellectual property rights featuring IP attorney Emil Nicolau, art expert Wendy Posner, and designer Gary Gibson. This conversation was recorded live from the Convo by Design de, uh, Audio Design Lab at the LA Design Festival, a collaborative space designed to showcase audio design and explore issues that affect designers of every discipline. Enjoy this conversation covering intellectual property rights for creatives. And if you do, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and a review. It is greatly appreciated, and it also helps new listeners find the show. Thanks. Combo by Design is presented by Snyder Diamond. Always first with what's next in the kitchen and bath. Snyder Diamond is a family-owned and operated company that serves the Southern California design and architecture community as well as discriminating homeowners through remarkable customer service and a curated offering of kitchen and bath appliances, fixtures, and finishes. The products at Snyder Diamond include the industry's best, like the full line of Mila appliances. Mila a family-owned and operated company offering industry-leading products since 1899. This includes a full line of refrigerators, ovens, steamers, cooktops, wine units, coffee machines, dishwashers, ventilation hoods, washers, and dryers. All of these products are made using the highest standards in manufacturing and industry-leading technology to provide a superior class of appliance. Form, function, and future. That's Mila. Pair that with the standard bearer when it comes to customer service, and Snyder Diamond delivers dreamy kitchens that exceed expectations. If that's not enough, right now, and for a very limited time, Mila is offering some amazing and very generous rebates and offers. For details on these and to see the full line of Mila products, visit any of the three Southern California Snyder Diamond locations or visit online at SnyderDiamond.com. This particular conversation has been in the in the works for a little while um, I'll tell you more about that in a second in a second but first I'm gonna pass it around um, we've got Gary Gibson we've got Wendy Posner we've got Emil Nicolau I'm gonna pass it first to Gary and we're gonna go around do me a favor brief background and where you come from and then the concept of the conversation I think will make perfect sense uh, Gary Gibson, a native of Los Angeles. Um, I'm an interior designer, product designer, and then I have a retail uh, vintage store on Beverly. Um, I've done design for 40 years. The furniture line that I have, Gibson Studio, is about 25 years old, and then the store is about 20. I'm Wendy Posner from Posner Fine Art. I'm a fine art advisor in Los Angeles. Our firm works with both private and corporate clients, and we do a lot of work for the hospitality and healthcare industry. Our firm was founded in 1960 in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, where we had a gallery for 37 years before moving to Los Angeles. And in the early 1990s, we went completely private uh, to work with our clients on a more one-on-one -on -one basis. 
And I'm Emil Nicolau. I'm an attorney here in Los Angeles, uh, focusing in intellectual property. Uh, grew up in Europe, moved to LA uh, as a young child, and uh, really kind of grew up in the entertainment business, focusing mostly on TV and film, uh, but really interested in this conversation. So <clears throat> here's, and now I'm going to go back the other way and tell you how I, I know each of you uh, and why this conversation is, is so important to me. Emil and I worked together at Playboy, and we covered a lot of intellectual property issues uh, when we were working on the podcast uh, and on-demand platform for Playboy. Um, Wendy, I have, this is our first time meeting, but she's been on Convo by Design before one of the panels that Wendy was on at um, West Edge from last year. And I thought that you did a remarkable job and, and so knowledgeable and, and the way you, you sort of explained the industry I thought was wonderful. And Gary and I, so this is kind of like the seed for it, where it comes from. Gary and I met on a trip to, uh, in Palm Springs during Modernism Week. And we had a conversation. It was Gary and I and another couple, both of them architects, or one was an architect, one was a designer. And we, we had this conversation with this woman who was an architect, and I think maybe she was overserved a little bit, but she was, you know, and she didn't understand why she would want to own, own the intellectual property of the designs that she creates. And I think Gary and I kind of looked at each other and it was like, I don't really understand this, but we want to go further. So we had this conversation. I think she cried at one point. But what, what, what I came away with was it's fascinating to me. Art kind of gets it from an intellectual property standpoint. And I think that that's an area that definitely is becoming much more prevalent, especially with digital and social media, that art is being repurposed in different ways that we weren't used to previously. So now it's really important to be able to protect your intellectual property and all your visual imagery, you know, whether it's, you know, paintings, drawings, sculpture, images that are appearing uh, online, and also product development that may be coming out of it and using those images without your knowledge as an artist. I don't think design and architecture gets it at all. I mean, it's, it's a really interesting area of the law, um, interior design specifically, uh, architecture slightly different, but the, the law broadly protects um, creative ideas that are fixed in sort of a tangible medium and interior design you know plays with functionality as well and, and broadly speaking the law doesn't typically protect functional creations um, and so what you find in interior design is, is a really unique sort of gray area where the law really needs to catch up with the industry um, but but certainly people should should have an interest in controlling their their work I think it's interesting in the design field because we are way behind on certain levels. The, the fact that an interior isn't really a proprietary property, but if I design certain pieces for that, then that's where the, the, the vast difference comes into play. So therefore, a lot of our product that we do for Gibson Studio comes out of those designs. Therefore, we, in turn, protect our proprietary product and it's it's very gray it's hard to pursue I know there's a handful of people in the in the industry that have pursued it against people and you probably know the cases mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of people just look the other way 
Well, I think going back to uh, Emil and I were having a conversation before we started uh, doing uh, the podcast, and it was about you know different things that have to do with patent, trademark, or even copywriting. And for example, technical fabrics. If you design a fabric that is a technical fabric or something that's different, that may have a patent on it. While the couch that you may use that on may not have a copyright or trademark, uh, you know, to that particular couch, unless it's let's say a BB Italia or you know something that's internationally renowned, and different designers may take a concept from a higher product uh, line and repurpose it in another way, but is that something that is trademarked or copyrighted because of what it is? And I don't think that that exists currently in that industry. I think the way the laws are set up now, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the, the changes you have to make to something is, is very minor to go from, let's say, a B&B Italia to whatever you want to do in this beach house you're making is, is minimal. And you can therefore get away with it. And it has nothing to do with it, like you say, the textile that's put on it. But it's done every day. You can thumb through any, you know, magazine and say, oh my God, that's B&B Italian. No, it's not. They don't credit it or it's not really the real product. It's happened over years and years. And I think everyone's become a little complacent. I think we have the internet. We have technology that all of our product can be downloaded. How do I, how do I monitor that? on a global level that someone in France you know, downloads one of our consoles, which we've seen happen. We've sold consoles to a purchaser for a hotel in Hong Kong, and then all of a sudden, we don't get any orders. Well, what they're doing is the purchasing agent is buying it. They're reproducing it for the hotel on a much different level of price point. Yeah, right. Unfortunately, unfortunately, you've hit on exactly where the, where the issues um, sort of lie in this industry, um, and and unfortunately, and, and you're right, the law hasn't caught up yet. And and really, what the way the law sort of par parses these things out is, the more functional the item and the design, the less protection the the law is going to get. Granted, the more creative and sort of unique the design or, or whatever the matter may be, the more protection it'll give it. And so, you know, the couch itself must be really unique in order for the law to sort of grant it these protections. And you're right, someone can, can make a small change to, to, to the design of, of a piece of furniture and arguably uh, not have any, any claim, any issues of claims or any risk there. Um, and so you, you're, you, I think you're, you, you hit it on the head where designers are, you know, the fabrics, the, 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 that's where the copyright lies. And so that's where your protections lie. Um, but if you're creating these sort of different designs of, of, a, of a functional piece of furniture, it's going to be very difficult to get protections, unfortunately. Well, I think that the bigger issue is that going back to the conversation about this is a global problem. This is not just a national problem or even a regional. This is something that's much broader. And the laws in each country vary as far as the protection of intellectual property. And within the art business, we see a lot of times as well, like furniture, that artists' work is being ripped off and the imagery is being repurposed and reproduced elsewhere at a much lower price point. So how do you protect your artist's work you know, from having that happen? It's extremely difficult in, unless you have people that are on the ground that are following those different images. And even if the work is copyrighted, how do you still protect yourself on a global level? See, I think that's the thing, is it, once you find the culprit, how do you pursue that? You know, do you, 
hire someone, an attorney, yeah. and pursue that, and what's the cost, and what's the return, what's the, what's the value in that? And it's horrible to say, but it's almost like you kind of have to let it go. You do. You have to make business decisions, unfortunately, right? I mean, and and it's it is costly to police your item, to police your 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 copyrights and your intellectual property. It's very costly, um, especially when you're talking on a, on a global world now, um, where you know people can can see your your design on the internet and be manufacturing it the next day in a, across the across the world. Um, it's very very difficult and it's very very costly. And um, and sadly, um, you know. Artists find that they have to make that decision. You know, do I let my sort of creations out in the world and, and let them go, uh, or do I actively police yeah. them? Uh, my take is to not, you know, stagnate my creativity. I just put it out there. Right. I mean, we stamp our furniture uh, with our Gibson logo and stuff, so there is something, a mark on it uh, that doesn't protect me from someone knocking it off. But I feel like I don't want to be a policeman of my own goods out there. And I think it's a little complacent on my part to say that, but I, I, that's not my purpose. Yeah. And I think it's like you said, you have to pick your battles. Uh, I don't know how it is in the art world because I think it's probably just as bad, if not well, I worse. Think, I think it goes to, there's a really perfect example that if you look up uh, information regarding art and intellectual property, there's a renowned artist by the name of Romar uh, Brito, and he has a trademark on his name. And he did that because his name is his brand. And so he is very good at controlling his brand and what's put out there and how his imagery is used. And so there are artists that are internationally renowned. You know exactly whose imagery that is. So it's easy to detect and to find people who are potentially uh, copying it or utilizing variations of that imagery. I think it goes back to a conversation today. Uh, we are listening to uh, KPCC or NPR, and it was regarding a video that uh, was on YouTube. And it was a video of a young child dancing, and in the background there was music by Prince playing. And it was on YouTube, and so Universal Music went after YouTube and said, you need to take the video down because of Prince's music. And the woman whose child it was in the video actually fought it, and it just settled out of court because she's like, this is something that's innocent. And if the music wasn't infringing upon a negative way of the brand of Prince's music, you know, did they really have a right to stand up to under the Fair Use Act as to whether or not they could have that music playing in the background? So that's a really broad, you know, aspect of you're looking at something that everybody knows Prince's music, and if it wasn't something that was damaging or tarnishing to the brand, you know, what is the legitimacy of any negative impact that may be happening by it being uh, exposed on YouTube? Yeah, and I and I think I think that issue was resolved fairly and and for the little person in in that, in that instance, and and that was a good sort of. Uh, demonstration of where freedom of speech trumps sort of the copyright. Um, and, and the beauty of, of the United States is we have this First Amendment, and, and we do believe that freedom of speech is a very powerful uh, right for the people. And so what, what the law does, and it provides sort of a fair use defense uh, oftentimes uh, against a copyright owner. And so the fortunate thing here in the United States is, is that freedom of speech often does trump, if, if it's really necessary, often does trump some, uh, a person's copyright. Um, but an interesting point you made as well was, was regarding trademarks. I think uh, 
designers and creatives can really use the trademark tool uh, to their to their benefit in that tr trademarks were really designed to um, prevent consumer confusion and to to prevent other companies and competitors from sort of riding on your goodwill uh, on the, the name that you've created and, and sort of the quality of the product that you've created and so quality and sort of um, uh, you know the the brand itself is another huge value that you could you could protect and and stamp your your creations with and so that at the very least the public knows this piece of of furniture was made with quality and and I can trust it because X company made it um, and so trademark is another tool uh, available to you but with trademarking too I mean you look at something like Canon camera I think that there were issues when Canon Camera wanted to trademark their name. They said the word Canon could be trademarked, but not the word camera itself. So that there's you know certain limitations too with Absolutely. trademarking as far as how you can really take it, you know, so literally. And when you know something, you can only do one aspect of it because camera can be lots of different kinds of cameras. Absolutely. I mean, trademark law is, is a whole interesting sort of section of, of the law itself, but you're absolutely right. They, they have sort of categories of different kind of trademarks and, and which, which categories are more protectable over others. Apple's a really interesting one, right? Like Apple computers. Uh, if you, couldn't name, you couldn't use the, the term Apple for a company uh, that was in the fruit industry um, because that was too generic. But uh, Apple computers in the, in the computer business, uh, they, that's a protectable mark. Um, and so you're right. You definitely have to do some research on your marks and 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 sort of picking the name of your company or of your brand. Um, but but that's definitely another tool available to, to creators. The other uh, thing we do is the medium we work in is stainless steel, bronze, hardwoods. Our fabrication is quite complicated, and it's costly to produce. So it somewhat is a, an, an inherent kind of protection because it's hard to knock us off. And I suppose you could do like wrought iron or something, or, but it's, it's going to be so far from the original, and I think it goes back to the context of materials used, the quality that we do, and part of our thing is we're really high-end quality, and that's the Gibson Studio brand that we want to push. So when someone sees something somewhat like ours, but it's like in wrought iron, they know, they know it's not the real deal, because right. no, we don't do that. That's very smart. Although we have considered doing a lower-end brand and knocking ourselves off sure. in that, that way. And I have been advised that, to do that sometimes because in hospitality, you don't have the price point to sell, as you know, in art. Right, exactly. It, you don't have the same as we do in a bronze console or a mirror or whatever we're making to do 500 of them. Right. So here's the price point you have. So can you knock yourself off? Right. No, and I'd rather be pr approached that way but I think that within, you know, if you look at within the interior design world as well as art world, when you're talking about something uh, like the hospitality industry in particular, where they're looking at uh, 600 rooms for a hotel and you're going to have multiple pieces in each room, that there's a licensing component to it. So we may work with an artist to create a unique image for that hotel brand. Correct. And it's a licensing fee that then is being paid and then they are able to produce that image at a lower price point and doing two pieces for every room. So you're looking at maybe 1,200 pieces total by that artist uh, for 
that particular property. So I think that you know, with licensing, that's something to uh, educate people who are interior designers, architects, and people within the art world about more and more of that aspect of how you can go around and still work on very quality projects, but doing it so it's a, either a royalty-based fee or, or a licensing fee. It's, it's such a great way to go because the fairness is there. Because we're working with a, on a, pro, a residential project up in Tahoe where we're working with a photographer where we needed a huge amount of, of her work and we wanted to blow it up in different formats. And so we did a licensing agreement with her and she, you know, we picked 10 images and she said we, could, we showed her what we were going to do with her images and she was fine. She signed off and that was the deal. But she gets paid for her work. Right. But we actually manipulated her work, got her approval and she was very happy. Right, Instead and we, of do us, that, like, we do that a lot of times within yeah. our business as well, especially right. when we're working on commercial or corporate projects. Uh, one of the things that's becoming you know, more integrated with the art and design is that we're doing a lot of wall murals and wall covering. Right. And so we may license an image by one of our artists to be repurposed for that right. specific type of uh, substrate. And it's taking their image and blowing it up and doing, let's say, a 20-foot wall. It's more economical than having them paint right. a mural. And I think it's important that it's put out there because I think a lot of people will still go to the way of like, how can I take this off the internet and knock it off and not tell that artist, you know? And that's just so unfair. And it's just, it's kind of malicious. It's malicious. It's not kind of malicious. It is malicious. It's theft. And it's, It's you know, the proprietary part of this whole conversation is it's either my photography, my furniture, whatever. And it's, we should be reimbursed for that. That's right, and we should we should be reaching out to artists, and, and this probably yes. goes back to the original question of why do you want to own the rights to it? It's so that you can you can control it, right? And so that, right. so that you can you can make an agreement. Somebody can reach out and say, "Hey, I want to use your work. Let's reasonable minds come together and figure out the right way that, so that I can use your artwork, and I'm not going to offend you. I'm I'm going to make sure that you sort of get compensated for the, the hard work that you put into this and, and the brilliance behind it. And so you know, it's it's a beautiful thing to see parties coming together and making those agreements. But, you know, I've done licensing deals for rugs and textiles before, and, you know, I haven't done it with the furniture, but it's, it's the easiest way and the fairest way for everyone to, to be taken care of. Right. I think that you probably, within the interior design industry, see it, you know, that type of work being done more with lighting. Uh, as opposed to, you know, other kinds of, you know, product. Lighting, there's, uh, you know, companies that will take a really high-end lighting fixture, license it, and then produce it more on the mass market production. You do see it with some furniture companies as well, you know, something like Design Within Reach, where they would take the Ames chair, and they have gotten the permission to reproduce that Ames chair, still to the specs of what the Ames chair was made, but doing it for more mass market. Right. Um, And I think that going back to the conversation about architecture, you know, and, you know, is architecture something in architects, should they be concerned about their intellectual property? And I think that that's something that's extremely valid. Um, Last year, I was in Palm Springs, and there was a new house that was built that was by an architect by the name of Al Beadle. And the Beadle house, actually, how it came to fruition in Palm Springs was that an architect was doing a project in Arizona, was going through archives at a library, and came across the plans for this house, and the house had never been built. And he was like, oh my god, I would love to build this house. And so he found out that Mrs. Beadle was still alive and called her, and she thought it was a joke. And 
he actually was hung up on by her when he called and asked for permission to build this house. Finally, after calling her back and coaxing her, they came to an agreement, which would be, you know, because the designs in the in the blueprints were by her husband, that they had to come to some sort of mutual understanding of some economic benefit to protect the image of the house, to have it be built in the way that Al Beadle would have liked to have, and they actually were able to do it. So that is still intellectual property of that house. It belonged to that architect, and it was his creation. There's a... Um this project we're doing in Tahoe, and we took a road trip one day with the client, and there's a country club in the middle of nowhere up in the Sierras, and it's a, Talias, it's a um, frankly, right building that they got the rights from Talias and West to build it as per his drawings, and it looks like the real deal. It's, it is the real deal, but as far as exactly how he designed it, but it was based on his drawings and they purchased the rights from the estate and it was the real thing and you look at it you pull up to it and you're like wow this looks like he probably would have done it that's cool uh, they didn't compromise it and you don't see that much in the architecture world like that i don't think well i think that you know it may be something that becomes more prevalent as you know, like architects like Zaha Hadid, that there are buildings right. that she designed that were never built. Correct. Uh, that you'll probably it, see it more is, of. You know, intellectual property that does belong to that original creator, and whether it belongs to the estate and how those things are handled. Well, because of her aesthetic and Absolutely. her distinct, Very specific. right? Like the one in New York that just went up by the High Line. I think, I don't know if that was why she was still living or not, but. It's obviously one of her buildings. Right, it is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. but it's just, yeah. And it's, and it's just worth noting to distinguish between architecture and interior design. Architecture is actually specifically noted in the Copyright Act as, mm -hmm. as something that is copyrightable and protectable, whereas inter interior design is sort of in that gray area. But very clear that architecture, architectural designs, absolutely protectable under the Copyright Act. Is, um, is there a percentage in, in furniture? I don't know the exact percentage, but I want to say, is there a, there's like a 10% or something that, that you can deviate from something and, and, and still, it's, it's, it's sketchy, right? But in architecture, is there a, is there a number? Uh, there's, there's no sort of bright line number that the law has ever sort of uh, dictated, at least to my knowledge. Um, it's, it's always sort of case by case analysis and, and and really in, in studying the similarities between the two. Um, so typically this arises by somebody filing a claim and saying, you copied my, my architectural design, right? And so then the court will have to look at both and really just study the, the similarities and see, did you have access to the, to the, to the last design enough to, so that you could have copied it? You know, because two people can come up with very similar designs in a vacuum. And in that case, there's no copying that actually happened. Those two people can both own each of their copyrights, but if you had access to the first uh, sort of building or architectural design, and and you and you and your design is very is substantially similar, more than likely a court is going to find you e in the wrong. Yeah, but wait a minute. So going back to the Palm Springs example, you know, you drive through Palm Springs, and you've got mid-century modern everywhere. Sure. There's not that much of a difference in in mid-century modern. You've got you've got you know five, six, maybe ten different variations of things that you'll see, but the, the similar, they're all similar. Yeah. Where's the, you only know that you did it wrong when somebody sues you. Well, I mean, unfortunately, to some degree, the answer is yes. Uh, you, you'll never really truly know whether you, you're in the, the clear or not until you're actually in the clear. Um, but, but, you know, with, with things like uh, mid-century design and modern-century designs, you know, 
that's sort of the umbrella, but the specifics, uh, you know, it's gonna it's gonna come down to the layout, the the floor plan, the uh, if it's an exact replica. yeah, if it's an exact, if, if it's an exact exactly, exact replica. But you can use sort of the theme or or, or sort of the the uh, era of design and 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 be comfortable and safe. But it's it's when you really begin to copy those blueprints and and the floor plans and the square footage and and you really get into the details when when you're likely to have a. Claim. I think the the broader question too is when you look at art architecture, design, at what point does that imagery and or information become public domain? Does that sure. become a public domain uh, situation similar to the likeness of like Mickey Mouse or certain characters that, you know, that there's certain things that are rules and regulations uh, regarding that kind of imagery and information? Uh, there's no doubt that that, uh, that, that, that that those rights fall into the public domain after a certain time, much like uh, the Mickey Mouse image. Um, uh, it's typically, I believe, 72 years after the death of the author uh, or, or the creator in, in this instance. So um, absolutely, architecture will certainly fall into the public domain. Basically, the, the, the Constitution um, you know, sort of created this area of law to incentivize creators to make to make a product so that they could be compensated for it, but they didn't want you know six generations of the artist's family to 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 live off of that brand. They wanted to encourage others to create. So the 72 years after the life of the author, they they deemed was a fair uh, length of time. Now that's been expanded over time by by lobbyists like Disney uh, and the Sonny Bono Act. Um, and so what you see is companies like Disney who have an incredible amount of value in these brands are lobbying the government heavily. Right, so not to, only to, is the information or imagery copyrighted, it also has trademarks on it. Sure. So sure. I have one last question for you guys because it, it made me think the I'm going to be speaking shortly with folks from Metro and it got me thinking when design, art, architecture falls under municipality or a <clears throat> excuse me or a government or any you know any any government is what are the what are the legal ramifications there because you'll see a designer do something in the in the in the manner of a street sign or or a freeway sign or a or a public sign or the state of California or the or America the map you know any other map or any other you know municipal signage where where is the where are the limitations there because somebody did create that that's right. I mean, it's a very interesting area of law as well. Uh, typically, m most things that the, that the the city, local, state, or, gov or federal government commissions, uh, typically that that will be owned by the public. Typically, um, it's not not a blanket rule, but typically, uh, there. I believe there was an instance in New York where the city tried, and I think was successful in copywriting the subway. Uh, signage, uh, because you see that in a lot of movies and, and a lot of artwork as well. But typically, when you've got taxpayer money going towards paying for this artwork or paying for these street signs, typically it'll belong to the public. Um, it's not a bright line I, rule. I would say that in most cases, yes, you're probably correct. I mean, one instance where it may differ that I know off, offhand is the Hollywood sign. Absolutely. So with the Hollywood sign, we were working on a project which was for a commercial building, and one of our photographers had photographed the Hollywood sign. But in order to use that imagery on an exterior of a building in Hollywood, we had to get permission and license the image 
from the Hollywood. It was actually uh, through, um, I think their Chamber of Commerce, actually, that they have a special department that deals with that iconic imagery to protect it as to how it can be repurposed, even if it's for one-time use, versus, you know, even doing T-shirts, mugs, hats, cups, which is, you know, obviously a broader scope. But it's something that is protected so that the likeness of the Hollywood sign would not be utilized in a way that's negative. That's absolutely right. And, and I know those guys to be very litigious and, and, uh, and aggressive in policing that mark. Uh, Josh and I, old, our old boss, Mr. Hefner, uh, was, was one of the people that contributed a, a large amount of money to keep the Hollywood sign uh, up and, and uh, renovated. And so at the Playboy Company, we actually had a great opportunity to use the Hollywood sign fairly freely um, because of, of Mr. Hefner's sort of participation in that. But you're absolutely right that they, they police it and there's a huge value there. Um, and, and and so it's you know, I believe on private property, um, but I don't know the full details. But it's a very interesting I- I- well, issue. What about something like the Capitol Records building? It's Is a great that- question. Uh, it, look, it's it's it certainly uh, has a a creative mod- a modicum of creativity behind it. It's certainly a unique building. I think though. I think, though, as as you know, as a member of public, if it's difficult to use it sort of as it's as a primary focus to, to generate revenue from. Yeah. But if you're doing sort of B roll in a in a movie and it happens right. to be in the scenery, it's, it's it's likely it's likely okay. So, I think the takeaway here is you're 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 legal unless you get sued. <laughs> you're okay until you get a letter. From the other side, protect your rights. Right. Um, trademark is Absolutely. is a way. Copyright and copywriting. Right. And so this clearly, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve the issue in one thirty minute conversation. But I, I would like to go around if you if you have questions um, and you're you're looking to contact any of the panelists. How can they find you? Absolutely. So you, you can you can absolutely Google me. Um, my name is Emil Nicolau. Uh, I'm, all my information is on the internet. Uh, you you can email me. My cell numbers are up there. I'm a member of the California Bar, so all my contact information is on that website. I would highly encourage people um, to to research the, these copyright areas, these trademark areas, and, and do your own research. But but absolutely reach out to an attorney um, if you if you feel like you've got questions and, and get really good advice because it's really important. This is a, it's a tricky area. And it's really important to, to get good advice from someone you, you really trust and, and someone that knows you and your specific fact pattern. And this podcast is a, is a conversation for entertainment purposes only. Please do not construe that as legal uh, representation <laughs> or, you, or advice. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> Wendy. To, to reach me, uh, I'm Wendy Posner again from Posner Fine Art. Our website is posnerfineart.com. You can reach out to us uh, with our phone number or email address on our site as well. And there are lots of different organizations that deal with arts and legal aspects of intellectual property, and I'd be happy to you know, make any recommendations or suggestions to artists and or designers or architects who would like more information on that. Uh, Gary Gibson, we could be reached at uh, GaryGibson.com. Uh, all the information is on the site. And um, I just say protect your interests in your, in your designs. This is Convo by Design from the LA Design Festival. Emil, Wendy, Gary, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Convo by Design is proud to be working with Vendome Furniture. 
design culture. It's the key to their success. It's what pushes them to consistently create new collections that give spaces a new dimension. They create dialogue between environment and form. Vendôme pieces can transform the simplest space into one filled with glamour that is both unique and extraordinary. And isn't that what design is all about? Creating atmospheres where you can take hold of life and enjoy it to the fullest? Vendôme products are simple and elegant contemporary and exceptionally comfortable. Their crafted, modern, durable, molded resin, glass, and metal designs are unique and they beg to be enjoyed. They search the planet for the right designers that embody the Vendôme spirit and work together to create remarkable pieces into an exclusively Vendôme mode of expression. And if you haven't seen Vendôme before, you can check them out in uh, some of the Convo by Design videos you'll find on our YouTube channel. But you can find them in their showrooms at the D&D Building in New York, Wynwood in Miami, and the Pacific Design Center here in L.A. Or online at Vondom.com.